0: Okay, uh next class we're gonna be doing uh, Meister Eckhart, all right, who I really like. Right? I mean he's really amazing. Uh, I'm a sucker for the poetic philosophers. What can I say? You know, I know what I like. Mm. I've read about half and I really like it. Yeah, I mean you can't I mean there's no faking whatever it is he's doing. <laughs> I mean, he's the real thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish you were better known, because it's just so amazing. Um, I mean, for me anyway, it just puts logic shopping way behind it. I I know, uh, how can I put it? It's hard exactly to to define godliness, but I know it when I see it, and there it is. So we're going to be doing Meister Eckhart, and we're going to talk about nominalism, and what a mess that made of. Middle Ages, yeah. Could I present anomalies? You a certainly can. That's great. I'd love it. Good for you. All right. Uh, that being said, um, we're going to finish off Dante today. Uh, what did you think? Was it uh, what you expected, given the way we started in hell? Kind <laughs> <laughs> of okay, the same theme throughout. Okay, yeah. It's one unified work. Remember that journey motif I've been telling you about? Okay. Well, this is Dante's journey, but the point is, this is every soul's journey. All right? So Dante is realizing what human nature is capable of.
1: Do you think Dante might be something like the first
0: everyman? Hmm. I don't know. Is everyman before or after this? I mean, we're talking early 14th century. My guess is, early man is every man is before this. Okay. Where would you see it before? I, I, this is the first that I'm aware of. You know, the the you're talking about the play Every Man, right?
1: No, no, the uh, the, uh, the concept of a character who doesn't necessarily represent himself, but represents all of us.
0: Okay. Uh, you, what you want to do is look up the medieval medieval uh, mystery play okay. called Every Man. Okay. It features Every Man. Gotcha. <laughs> <and> every man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the idea is that this is what every man has to face, and this is what every man must overcome. Okay? And so it's a couple of centuries before this. What else? You did read this, right? <laughs> I know you're on break, but, you know. The, this is maybe just m- my taste, but I, I
1: quite found uh, Paradiso almost as enjoyable as Inferno. Mm, okay. Uh, the, I, I found it as dramatic to see who was in hell as it was to see who was in heaven. Very okay, that's the, certainly the same good. drama is
0: at play. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, we get occasionally some surprising people in heaven, like um, well, that's perfect, right? but Cato is just weird. <laughs> well, yeah. How did he get there? I mean, he's got apparently a kind of <laughs> part-time job, even though he's supposed to be in the first circle of hell, and his part-time job lasts forever. And it is supervising Purgatory, and I mean it's proper to have a Roman st- Stoic Just there being virtuous and kicking everybody's butt. I mean you've read Marcus Aurelius. That's what the Stoics do All right? You can count on them. They get a job to do. They'll be there All right. What else yeah?
1: I liked in the, the
0: Purgatory
1: of how uh, at each level there was the person that he was talking to and like tell them you know, tell the people that you pray for me, or I don't expect the people from my hometown to be praying for me, or each one of them is like asking for prayers to shorten their sentence.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, uh, all of the departed in purgatory um, would like a little help from us, right? And look, um, the idea is that someday you too may need help. All right. Um, if you're not inclined to give it, the chances of you making hell are pretty good. All right. if on the other hand you are inclined to give it you may skip purgatory altogether mm-hmm. uh, what else yeah the, the, his handling of predestination was a bit of a, a frustrating cop out I, I couldn't quite, yeah what, what, what's his, what's the view that he sketches out
1: uh, that, well God hasn't figured out and none of us understand it enough.
0: I don't know um I much prefer that to metaphysical, theological, cosmogonology, where I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, in other words, I prefer um, simple silence to learned ignorance. Right? Uh, If any of you think you understand uh, God's foreknowledge and human freedom and how that works out, do let me know. All right? I mean, there's a a paper in that if you want to do that. On the other hand, that is an abyss. Good luck with that. i catch uh, we'll you in a second. Uh, one of my great, the people that I like most in the Catholic tradition is Erasmus. He wrote a, once wrote a book and said, you know, I've been, I'm a really smart guy. I've been doing all the stuff like uh, translating the Bible and such, and I've been thinking about this problem of predestination. And you know what? I have no clue as to what the answer to this is. Not only that, but... Uh, I don't even think it's worth examining. I mean, you might do it as students, but, I mean, nobody's getting to the bottom of this. And so he says, look, you know, lighten up. I mean, yes, there's a sense in which everything is is foreordained. God knows everything. On the other hand, you also do have freedom, which is why you have moral responsibility. How do you get those things to work together? They don't, in any logical way. If you want to do it in, in, in something other than a logical way, it's either going to be in a divine way or an insane way. Take your choice. Yeah? Uh,
1: Virgil himself actually says that a foolish he who hopes that with our reason
0: we can trace the infinite path taken by the one substance and three persons. Good luck on that. All right. uh, I think that Dante got it right. I think Erasmus got it right. Um, there are just certain things which. The human mind is not capable of grasping. If you want, I mean, look. There's so many examples of that that I can give you that I will tease you with in the course of this term. But uh, you know, there are quite a few. God's foreknowledge and human freedom don't match. How that works, nobody knows. All right. So, even prior to Erasmus, even in the Middle Ages. People were perfectly aware of this problem and usually it provokes some kind of response which is badly inadequate. All right? All right? Uh, it's a lot of effort not to get anywhere. Always remember that when you're, remember this particularly for your papers, um, intellectually if you want to make progress you have to organize your thinking. All right? In other words, thrashing about in the water is not swimming. Alright, and if you choose a topic like how does necessity connect with human freedom and God's foreknowledge and all the rest of that jazz, um, you are likely to spend 10 or 15 pages thrashing about in the mental water. Alright, so you want to get out of that. What were you going to say there? I was just going say,
2: with that in mind that he's not presenting a clear view of that, why are some of the people in heaven? that are? I mean, I can understand, Purgatory and Havoc, pretty close together, but like, it was like Trajan,
0: who... Uh... <laughs> well, remember, Trajan in the Middle Ages was alleged to have converted to Christianity. No, no, I mean, we read, remember Wilkins, that book with colloquy with Trajan and Pliny, yeah. A really weird one is the minor character in Virgil. that He throws in heaven to Jupiter for no apparent reason. Uh, the minor character, which is Raphius of Tr- uh, Troy, at least I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, how, well, he just says, "Look, check out the grace of God and the mercy of God. We got this odd Trojan ruler. <laughs> what? I mean, he didn't have to do that, right? But he decides to do it anyway for reasons that surpass my understanding." My sense when I read
1: that is that Dante was dealing with two poles of his own personality. One pole of his personality was trying desperately to be orthodox, and the other part of his personality just had a really hard time accepting the medieval idea that only those who believe in the Christian faith go to heaven, Mm -hmm. uh, because he's so immersed in all these pagan writers. Uh, So he's just trying to find any little leeway that he can orthodoxly, quote, quote, uh, get some pagans into
0: heaven. Yeah, Dante's a funny creature that way. Uh, he likes who he likes. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he tidies up God's decision-making. <laughs> 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 and uh, sends up the ones he happens to like, like Riffin. He don't ask, don't tell. What the hell is he doing there? Nobody knows. It's God's mercy. Well, why isn't the rest of humanity there? Apparently... Only face gets that. <laughs> um, here's a guy who is met by the great poets of antiquity. They hail him as one of the great, seven greatest poets in the world. And on Mount Purgatory, you start out being wailed on for pride. Mm. How will Dante escape that, being one of the seven greatest poets ever written? I don't know. Right. He knows it's a problem. He can't resist it. He can't hold it back. you got to say, look, by the way, all right, a word from my sponsor, I'm one of the greatest poets that ever lived. It's not pride if you can back it up.
2: Yeah. Is the only difference between the people in purgatory and the people in, in the inferno is that they repent at some point in their life? Yeah. That's the only separation that makes them. Right. Even if it's, they they repent and then keep sinning but they repent, go back to repenting.
0: Oh, uh, well, we have the inconstant. All right? That's at the beginning of uh, the Paradiso. Um, but uh, my sense is is that it's not just a question of repentance. It's where you are, whether you're repenting or sinning, mm-hmm. at the end of the story.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because when you get to the end of your life, if you're repenting, God will give you a break. On the other hand, if you're not, mm, we've well, we got a problem there. All right? So, uh, Repentance and getting particularly last rites, right for those of you that can, you get your confession, you get to take the blessed sacrament, uh, you know that's an advantage that allows you to get out of uh, hell free, and maybe it even pops you up from purgatory to paradise. So I have to take a look at that. So repentance counts for a lot, and I've often thought that uh, Dante for such an advocate of orthodoxy is strangely unrepentant of the odd things he does. Right? I mean the peculiar people he puts in heaven, hell and purgatory. I don't know. And uh, Dante himself is uh, an imperfect moral guide but his soul is improved if not perfected. All right? and. We can talk about what happens when he gets to Canto 100, but uh, he's improved by his adoration second hand of Beatrice. One
1: of the the, one of my favorite parts about this poem is just the the very subtle way that Dante shows his (coughs) journey. He begins in the Inferno with fainting uh, when he sees the lustful because he knows that he should be there. Mm -hmm. Then in the so his love is disordered. Then in the Purgatorio, he joins the people who are being purged on the part of lust. Mm-hmm. And then in the Paradiso, close to the end, uh, John asks him, what is love? And
0: he, his response demonstrates that his heart has been rightly ordered. That's right. right. So he undergoes a, a change of soul in the course of this. Which means that this is both a physical and a spiritual journey. Play it all Here we go. Yes, we've seen this before. Remember the symposium, climbing the ladder of beauty up we go. Um, this borrows heavily from that particular tradition. Yeah,
1: not only I mean, that, Dante got the idea, more or less, of a Beatrice type figure from Petrarch, but also from Boethius, mm-hmm. and Boethius got the idea of Lady Philosophy from the symposium. So there's a direct line of yeah, connection.
0: Very nicely done. And uh, Boethius turns out to be one of the wise, so he makes it into the sun, which is the place to be. And it's not an accident that the sun and wisdom are connected. I mean, this is pretty much, <laughs> this is deeply saturated in Platonism. So you're at the point now where you can actually start to begin to see the connections that you wouldn't have if you hadn't paid your dues and done the Greeks. And you have to do them right because so much grows out of it. Um, seven deadly sins. Why are they arranged in the order they are? In other words, if you have seven deadly sins, it doesn't tell you what sequence to put them in. Why does that? Well, yeah, it's because pride's the root of all sins. That's, That's right. The that it's the base of the mountain. Yeah, he gets this order interestingly from Aquinas. Mm-hmm. And it's also the inverse of the order that we saw with. Uh, uh, in Inferno all right So uh, the lustful are you know the first of those to be punished, but at the end uh, it's those who transgress the law of love and we go through all of these sins, but here the sins can no longer be repaired because people died unrepentant. Right. What else? Yeah, I
1: like how he, for almost all of the uh, sins and purgatory, had Mary as the, the symbol of the corresponding I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty. Clear.
0: That's actually very nice. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, she's the, uh, how can I put it, the ambassador of the virtues, and she's offering them to you the way she offered them to the child Jesus. Mm-hmm. All right, which means you can treat treated pretty well. Right, you were lucky, you sinful creatures. You're in purgatory, and Mary's come down to give you a break. Nice thought, thing to do. We climb the mountain, but we can only climb during the daytime. Hmm. Why? Remember, well, you you read the Paradiso. Uh, and you noticed that God was kind of light? Yeah, well, there we go. Right. Uh, that's where we're moving, moving from darkness to light, that's one of the ways of thinking about what we're we're doing here, right? It's a journey from the depths of depravity to the very peak of goodness. So what this is then, yeah, it's a journey through the afterlife, but it's also a journey through the human soul.
1: So yeah, it seems that the idea is that even on Earth we already participate in one of the three realms, depending on the
0: part of our journey that we're. We are uh, preparing our place in the afterlife while we're alive, and uh, those that follow Christian morals inevitably are going to slip. None of them perfect, but. the degree to which they successfully repent on earth will be realized in heaven. Yeah?
1: Uh, the way he described the Garden of Eden is actually, um, was actually really cool. And there was uh, the ceremony they had in the Garden of Eden.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of symbolic stuff going on there. We got, uh, you know, the uh, the virtues, the, well, the, the four virtues, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. He must have noticed that. It's not nice. right from Plato, and also faith, hope, and charity, which is what we get. When we get to the fixed stars and the three greatest apostles. Ask Dante. Well, let me check to see if you. Uh, it's like, can I see some ID? Okay. You go to the thirty third canto, and uh, I want to make sure that you belong there. So you know what faith is. You know why do you believe the Bible? Uh, you wretch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And he passes the test. Yeah. One really cool thing in the, uh,
1: the earthly paradise, the Eden, is uh, he sees Beatrice uh, across the, the river and the, the poetic devices that he uses are hugely evocative of these Horribly lustful, very disturbing uh, medieval stories that were told, mm-hmm. and what Dante is doing is saying, like, this is what I was tempted to do with
0: Beatrice, but, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, those of you who know uh, this tradition is very important in the Renaissance um, begins with Petrarch in the um, about the same time actually, and uh, the idea is that you find a woman. In the case of Petrarch, it's Laura. uh, She was a noble woman. She's impossibly beautiful. Um, But somehow, this leads us upward. So, um, properly ordered love of male and female starts out at the level of physical lust, but transcends that and goes beyond it. And it's in transcending that, that we move from earthly love, which will get you put in the second circle of hell, or earthly lust, to uh, Christian agape. Love in the sense of pure benevolence, not eros. So... uh, We are led aloft by this feminine image of moral perfection. Remember what Plato says in the Republic, or not the Republic, in the Symposium, that what we see in our beloved is a reflection of the ultimate good, a reflection of eternity? Well, that's what they're doing. Uh, It gives you some sense of how deep The Western tradition is indebted to Plato. If you know your stuff when it comes to Plato, if you paid your dues, damn, it's everywhere. Now one of the interesting things is that I'm I'm not entirely sure what the difference is between religion and philosophy. I know it's going to sound strange, but um, Plato is represented in the Christian tradition as offering Uh, Christian moral insights. Not always, but often. And uh, as Augustine says, it's the philosophy most similar to Christianity. My view, you don't have to believe this, but this is the way I read it, um, my view is that Platonism is one of the great world religions. And that that's one of the things that makes it strange in any discussion of philosophy, or rather, of Christianity. In other words, uh, those that wanted to eliminate the pagan influences on Christianity, they're not entirely wrong. In other words, I really like Plato. I really like Platonism. But my first moral language is Christianity. And we're all best... You're never going to get any better at any language than your native tongue. On the other hand, I have near-native near fluency in Platonism. Right? I mean, I can translate one to the other fairly effectively. Um, that doesn't mean you can reduce one to the other, but there's a considerable amount of overlap. Alright? It's where they fail to overlap. We have to think it through. Alright? So, yeah? Is so actually very, deeply related to the idea of uh, the, the,
1: the feminine and the Masculine leading us up into eternity. That's right. Uh, the the Jerusalem is primarily a, a feminine orientation, an open receptivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greece is primarily a masculine
0: orientation. It's a uh, going out to the world and conquering it. It's interesting. Yeah, possibly. But you know, what about go and teach ye all nations? They, they interpenetrate. Yeah, uh, for certain. But there is. There is a
1: relationship between the two of them that is not unlike the testy
0: relationship of a married couple. Hmm, that's an interesting idea. I shall have to think about that. Yeah, you might be right. Um, certainly um, because Christian scripture and Christian liturgy um, is connected to Greek, we're going to be wholesale importing Greek philosophical ideas, which is why Christianity is more strangely Entwined. You ever see that, that symbol, it's, a, it's two snakes going around a stick, it's called the caduceus. What it represents is the unity of opposites, male and female would be an example of that. All right? So we get the unity of opposites and that's sort of the way uh, Greek philosophy and, and monotheistic religion braid together in the Western tradition. Um, sometimes one is emphasized over the other. At no time is either side completely eliminated, but um, it's an uneasy braid because they all, they only partially connected, only partially interpenetrate, Yeah. One interesting way of seeing the history of Western
1: civilization is you have the beginning of these two traditions, and then you have something close to a synthesis mm-hmm. in the High Middle Ages with uh, Aquinas and Dante. Yep. Uh, and then, shortly thereafter, starting with nominalism, you have the breakdown of that alliance, and then the swinging back and forth for the next several hundred years
0: right um and the uh disjunction will be in uh, the disjunction of Athens and Jerusalem will be in some ways the main theme of Pascal mm. all right yeah. now the idea that uh Laura, or in Dante's case Beatrice, is going to lead us upward out of this world of the senses um, that's a very I mean, that certainly goes back to the symposium, but looking ahead for, towards the next year there's two years of this, you're all stuck, um, we're going to find that the last line in Goethe's Faust, the eternal feminine leads us upward now Nietzsche laughed at that because he couldn't figure out what it meant <laughs> All right. And what my view, again, you don't have to, but this is my reading. My guess is the reason why Nietzsche didn't understand that, whereas almost every normal man does, is there's no doubt in my mind that this uh, reflects a homosexual orientation. In other words, if you don't understand how love of the feminine can lead you upward and can spiritualize you, you don't like girls. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my guess.
2: right? You know, if you draw
0: a blank, you don't see how that works. Uh, well, uh, my sense is that you don't find women attractive, and that they don't give you that transformative energy that comes from uh, godly love. Right? And it wouldn't be surprising, given that nature is nature. All right. um, Virgil drops out. All right. Once we get to the earthly paradise, he says, "Look, I got to go back to hell, unless there's a unless there's a two o'clock tour I have to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's like the guy works at Disneyland, <laughs> I got another bunch gonna have to lead them through. But apparently, only only Dante gets to do this. You have to be one of the seven greatest poets ever. All right. So um, Virgil takes off. Beatrice takes over. Um I must confess there's an astonishing elaborate set of symbols uh, when we get to uh, the end of the purgatorial, we get to the earthly uh, the earthly heaven, um, we get uh, the virtues and the both platonic and the uh, theological virtues, right uh we get a number of other people, and the colors they're dressed in, it all has to do, it, it's, in some ways it reminds me of uh, Ash Wednesday, not Ash Wednesday, it reminds me of, uh, of uh, Fat Tuesday, all right, it's Carnival, and this is, well, look, you'd be celebrating too if you cut off Mount Purgatory, you say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game for this, let's go, and uh, it leads us in a procession upwards, all right? gotta like that. Once we get to a paradise, what's it like? Is it everything you you hope for? Yeah.
1: He says at uh, the very beginning of the paradise, so uh, I forget the exact lines, but it's something to the effect of, "I remember this, but words cannot possibly describe even what I remember is so big that it's just it's beyond me."
2: Yeah, like yeah, that's like at the end when he's he's trying to picture God and he keeps asking, "Can you just?" Give me some of this knowledge so I can explain to people back home what it's like. And he, he like maybe gets a little bit of it and then it just his mind goes blank and he can't remember anything. It's so perfect
0: that he can't articulate it. Okay. Um, uh, do not use this on exams or papers. <laughs>
2: I would recommend
0: recommend that no matter how perfect your understanding. <laughs> Uh, that you don't say, look, my mind goes blank, it happened to Dante, he's one of the seven greatest poets that ever lived, I'm not even there, but my mind went blank too. Okay. That's something I learned from Dante. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, uh, having your mind go blank, um, I think that that's true of so much of what we're going to get at the Paradiso, right? Uh... God is beyond language. And so that's why we need uh, the narratives, the stories that we have in Scripture. All right? Um, God in the Old Testament shows up as a burning bush. Okay. Um, what does that mean? I mean, imagine poor Moses, a burning bush. It's given me orders. I've got to go to Pharaoh. Um, Which God are you, by the way? Yeah. I am not. <laughs> I am. I have, well, well, thanks. That does clarify things. All right? And if he's not a burning bush, he can show up as a tornado, as a whirlwind in Job. What do those images have in common? How about a man on a cross? Does that help? All right. Um, Whatever God is, it far exceeds the capacities of the human mind. Which also is, which means that it's also going to far exceed the capacities of language, which is the poet's stock in trade. So he's knowingly running against the limits of cognition and the limits of speech. All right. So he's going towards something, all we know is that it's really, really and light somehow figures into it. You know?
1: There are a few lines of the poem where I feel like I get just a little glimpse of what's going on. Uh, one of my favorites is in the first canto, uh, where all of a sudden he just starts flying upwards, and he says, well, "Why am I? Why am I heading up?" And Jesus says, "It would be more natural for flame to freeze than for you not to fly straight towards God." Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful
0: line. Yeah.
2: Yep. I was just. Thinking- questioning this whole time cuz some of the stuff he was saying I was like wow that just seems like it could be true to what extent like does the church hold his like his writings with validity like um he was nearly
0: banned okay for his life. <laughs> <laughs> in other words there were a large number of leading churchmen who wanted this it was defended by a block of Italian cardinals who said, "No, no, no! We know the Italian language, and this <laughs> is the real thing. And we will make some adjustments in theology, but this stays." <laughs> but
2: so the stuff he's saying is it necessarily like what the, the, would it's be orthodox? It's not okay.
0: Right. Well, that's why he gets Raphaeus the Trojan, in heaven. What the, the hell's mm-hmm. going on here? He's too, uh, my sense is he just does that to show that he can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, who the hell is Raphaeus? I mean, you, know, you really have to reach to get that guy. But Socrates doesn't make it in. He's still back in the first circle. Yeah. The, uh, uh, although the church didn't find it very
1: authoritative, Dante himself uh, claimed at various points in his life that this was an account of an actual journey he'd been on and argued that his book should be interpreted the way the Bible it was interpreted. Naturally. Well, it's
0: kind of like a
2: Muhammad, like...
0: Well, he he's not so that bad, but he's close. That's the funny thing. I mean, in other words, you get a certain... Well, if you're a poet, you get poetic license, but if you're one of the seven greatest poets that ever lived, then you get some of the most astonishing poetic license you're ever going to see. <coughs> right. So, uh, you know, he's got some Muslims up there in the first circle of hell. We get Raphaeus and a number of other surprising figures among the uh, just rulers. right? Paul? So, uh, okay. Now, we have to understand the medieval view of the physical universe because that is represented here. Right? Um, in some ways, uh, Galileo offends more against uh, this or against Dante he knows about God there's not, a lot, there's not a lot of uh, information about the uh, heavens, the solar system, in the Bible. And what it says is not very easily mapped onto the real solar system. Um, but that's not the end of the world, because again, since we have stories here, these are meant to be understood allegorically and symbolically, and that's the great advance that Augustine got from Ambrose. Okay. So we're going to start from the center, or from the from the bottom of he- of heaven, or rather from the earth, and then move outward in these concentric rings. So you have to remember that for the medievals, the sky is made up of what is it eight nine nine, nine clear glass spheres. Now this is counterintuitive. But it's not, if you stop and think about what they knew and what they could observe. This is an ingenious, completely wrong, and this should warn you about science. There are a lot of ingenious things that are going to be completely mistaken. What's What's amazing about this is what they're trying to do is describe the motion of, the, of heavenly bodies. Now, when we get to the eighth level, that's the fixed stars, the fixed stars are Screwed into the very fabric of heaven. In other words, uh, heaven is like a—it's like a ceiling. All right, and this is a very intuitive account of the universe. In other words, imagine at the center you have the Earth here, and we're all looking out from that. And then somebody puts a cereal bowl on top of it. That cereal bowl is the sky. So when a child says, "Why is the sky blue, Daddy?" I could say, look, it has to do with the scattering of light rays and golden blue, but I could also say because God painted heaven blue, right? I mean, it's it's a, it's a child's view of the universe, but it's actually very intuitive. You know what's terribly counterintuitive? The idea that space goes on forever. What the hell does that mean? What is infinite space? I mean, I can use the term, but do you know what that exactly <laughs> gestures at? What what does it mean for space to be infinite? It means there are no boundaries to the universe. The hell is that? Okay, so here we have the earlier view, the cereal bowl upside down. Now inside the cereal bowl, at the center is the Earth, but there are eight. Yeah, I think it's eight. In the seven are glass spheres. Okay, now these are concentric, like the, the, like those Russian matryoshka dolls. Okay. All of the things in the sky that move, move because they're fixed, they're screwed into these crystal spheres, and it's not the objects themselves that move, rather it's the spheres that are moving, which accounts for why they appear to move across the sky, okay? So the sun is screwed into its own little glass sphere, which is why it goes the way it does, because that's the motion of the sphere. Same sort of thing with the planets and the moon. So what this means is this. Heaven is... uh, The heavens are a set of concentric rings and these rings move and that accounts for the motion in the universe of the heavenly bodies. Also, uh, you can't hear it, but in heaven, uh, these glass spheres... Uh, create a sound which is called the music of the spheres, right? So the universe, yeah, I know it's it's kind of weird, has its own uh, eight concentric rings. This may represent the octave. Yeah,
1: Pythagoras often claimed to have heard the music of the spheres. There we go,
0: right? So again, know your Greeks. Everything's gonna be derived from that. Okay, so we're gonna start with the moon. Who makes it to the moon? These are the cheap seats in heaven. Right? These are the bleachers, standing room only in the moon. The inconstant, in other words, those who forsook vow, vows, but did so for moral reasons. Uh, if you think back into the Bible, uh, into the Old Testament, in particular, the, you know, Jephthah and Jephthah's daughter? Okay, well, here's the deal. It's a sin to violate a vow, but it's worse to kill your daughter. And my sense is, is that Dante wants us to believe that he didn't, whereas my sense is in the Bible, it looks very much like he does. It doesn't actually say so, but um, you have to remember that in the Old Testament, words are magic. They have power that our words don't have. So when Jephthah says he's going to sacrifice whatever comes through the door next, that's what it goes next. Um, think about uh, Abraham and Isaac, all right? Esau's the. Uh, older brother, but mom works together with with, uh, with Jacob. And they trick dad, who's old and blind, and uh, gives him the, and so dad gives the second son, not the first son, the blessing. All right, now here's the deal. If we were to do that, and we were to see a thing like that, we'd say, look, lighten up. Um, hold on there, uh, Isaac. Uh, or rather, hold on there, Jacob, we're going to uh, redo the uh, blessing that you, give to, that you give to the son. And we're not going to have you give it to the second son. We're going to have you give it to the first son. Here's the problem. They can't do that. It's what we would do. We would just do it again. But the problem was, back then, he had said the magic words. And once you say the magic words, you can't unsay them. All right? Oh, my God. He said the magic words over the wrong son. This is an unfixable, irremediable problem. So, uh, the inconstant just make it into heaven. They're lucky. Mercury, the next one up, the ambitious. This, I think, is Kant's favorite because it contains people who did bad things, who did good things, but for the wrong reason. <laughs> and you know how much of your intention matters if you're going to get all Kantian. And if you don't, next, next fall we are going to get all Kantian, we'll know what's going on. But the idea is that uh, not only do you have to engage in the right action, but you have to do it for the right reason in the right spirit. So it refers to your state of mind, your state of soul. Not only do you have to engage in virtuous conduct, but you have to do it for the right reason, and there's only one right reason, the greater glory of God. Not the greater glory of you, which is what the ambitious are doing. Venus, the lovers, how did they get here? I thought that they were back in the second circle of hell. What are the lovers doing here? Apparently their love if it was not chaste, was not um, morally transgressive in the way that Paolo and Francesca were, right? In other words, it sounds like the beginning of a Shakespearean tragedy where uh, Francesca marries uh, some guy with a really bad temper, and this guy, her husband has a younger brother, she falls in love with the younger brother, um, they spend time together and eventually they have sex and then daddy comes home and kills them both. so he's at a, he ends up at a very deep level of hell for being a murderer, but they are, they get a a break in hell. Um, The difference in the third level is that these are the moral, but imperfectly moral lovers. They're right in the sense that they love their beloved, but they don't fully realize that their beloved is a reflection of an ultimate object of love. All right. OK, the sun. I, I like this one. Here are the whys. Who, who, who counts as the whys? Who's there? Yeah. The, the two main representatives are uh, Aquinas and Bonaventure. There we go. We got a Franciscan and a Dominican. You have to remember the Franciscans and Dominicans did not get along. It is not an accident that William of Ockham is a Franciscan. All right, um, he's been take- he and the other Franciscans—been have been taking a lot of crap from the Dominicans, and they don't want to put up with this anymore. So there's a, an ongoing conflict between the two uh, orders, yeah. Which
1: is why it's so appropriate that in heaven they get along, and uh, Aquinas praises the
0: Franciscans. Right, and, and then uh, uh, a Franciscan praises Bonaventure. Right? Praises Dominican. the Dominicans. Right. Yeah, Dominic uh, praises Bonaventure. So um, we have both the Franciscans and the uh, uh, Dominicans kind of relaxing and understanding together. The good ones manage to make it up, um, despite the fact that they have conflicts in this world. Yeah. What's really appropriate about that is that Bonaventure and Aquinas themselves were the best of friends. Which is as it should be. Right? We have enough conflicts with the world What's this conflict's within the church? Um, All right. Who else do we get there? Besides the Dominicans and Franciscans. Who makes it into the realm of the wise? We
2: got,
0: yeah. King Solomon. King Solomon, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, granted he was wise. What's he doing here?
2: Yeah. He asked for, when God um, asked him what he wanted, he asked for one thing and it was like, he claims it's good practical
0: knowledge, but he just has to be wise, and yeah. he was gifted to him. you got to like that. The problem is he's not a Christian. What do we want to do with him? In other words, uh, it's faith in Jesus that leads us upward towards God himself. Um, he's only got part of the way there. All right? So I guess he was part of the harrowing of hell when Jesus brought the good pre-Christians up there. Um, I wonder where they get put besides um, the level of the sun. Right? I wish he had been a little more specific about how they get distributed.
2: Wouldn't Plato be in that same realm then? Because
0: well, I don't know. I mean, look, if I were writing it, we'd put Plato on there, right? And we wouldn't have any of this crap with Roman poets without him guiding us. <laughs> so what's going on? Um, but. Uh, I expected, I mean, I would have expected to see Plato, but he never makes it in. One assumes he's back in the first circle of hell. All right. Um, We get, who else do we get, though? We get Aquinas and uh, Albertus Magnus. We get Boethius. Isidore of Seville. Now, you don't know who he is, but he's actually important. He is one of the greatest, arguably the greatest, um, 13th century translator of... Greek, Roman, and Arabic texts. So remember when I told you that um, the Reconquista was actually hugely important. One, because Spain comes back to Catholicism, but even more important is the fact that in the process of doing that, they they absorbed and took Islamic libraries, which had Greco-Roman texts that the West didn't have, it lost. And also had Arabic texts which turned out to be very useful in things like astronomy right, or medicine. So uh, it's very clear to Dante that this translator is one of the really wise, really important people that he gets mentioned by name. Right? What it means is something like this we usually don't think of the Middle Ages as being especially dynamic. But in fact, in some ways, it was. And that's worth considering. Any of you know the the, uh, poem called The Song of Roland? Mm -hmm. If you don't, you should. I just don't have time to put it on the list. But Song of Roland is written about 1100. Actually, a little before 1100. right, So maybe 1050 to 1100. And the First Crusade is 1096. So what it is is anti-Muslim propaganda so that you can whip up uh, people that are willing to invade the Holy Land. OK. There, the account of Islam is actually pretty funny, because it's so bad. I mean, they just get it completely wrong. Um, it's a story about how perfidious Islamic armies attacked the, uh, uh, the, I put the, the rear guard of Charlemagne's army. All right. Now there are a couple of problems with this. One, it's actually based on a real historical battle, but he kind of gets it wrong in the sense that there aren't any Muslims involved. What it is is really an attack by Basques, who are Christians, on that. But it won't do if you're going to try and get people to go on the First Crusade. So we're going to turn the Basques into Muslims, and then we turn the Muslims into polytheists, which is of course what they think about Christianity. Right? because they don't know jack of, I mean, they know the poets don't know jack about Islam All right? but they know they don't like it and they know that there's this ancient tradition of Charlemagne the great Christian king being attacked and so well just change it move it from Basque to Muslims. who the hell knows who the Basques are anyway right? so they get rid of them so um, what it is is pretty primitive rather crude uh, propaganda for the First Crusade. Okay, look at how much has changed between say 1100 and the early 1300s here with Dante. Dante knows an uncomfortably large amount about Islam. Alright? I mean granted Muhammad gets put in a very deep pit of hell. He's not quite at the bottom but pretty close. But on the other hand, um, it's clear that Dante has read the Quran which is why we get cold hell, right? That's not in the, in, uh, the Old and New Testament. That's actually in the Quran. Also, we're going to get the occasional Muslim who makes it into the first circle of hell, like Saladin. Okay. Um, I can't imagine the poet or poets who put together the Song of Roland allowing Saladin or any other Muslim any place close to... All right? So um, at this time, Dante and the culture he's derived from has encountered and actually thought through some of the Islamic intellectual tradition in a way they hadn't 200 years earlier. You know? A huge part of this was Aquinas. That's right. You
1: uh, greatly respected uh, Avicenna and some
2: other. Averroes, Aver- 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 he's really great, yeah.
0: And of course, Sigur of Brandt was a Christian Averroist. Right? Aquinas is actually—I mean, Scholastic—but Aquinas in particular um, clearly has studied Islamic texts. Clearly has, has uh, knows something about the intellectual traditions that Islam has preserved and, and articulated, and uh, he also knows a Jewish tradition. Strangely, one of the things that's worth thinking about is that at roughly the same time, all right, the time of Aquinas, mid thirteenth century, uh, at roughly the same time, both Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all trying to figure out how they can shoehorn Aristotle into this. That's (laughs) right, I was just going to say, Maimonides' guide for the perplexed one of the great rabbis says, you're probably perplexed about how Aristotle is really a kind of Judaism. (laughs) Well, I can explain it to you. And. Uh, wherever he needs to or wants to, Aquinas and the other scholastics include Islamic elements. They don't attribute it to Islam, but they clearly know Islamic writers. Um, So it means that even the Muslims are trying to find their way around Aristotle. See, the problem is that that about 1,200 um, Islam reaches its intellectual peak. It's all downhill from there. It reaches its intellectual peak with a guy named Al-Ghazali. Right. Al-Ghazali is a trip. He's, he actually wrecked Islamic culture. He was a mystic, a Sufi mystic, and uh, he studied Greek philosophy and decided, get ready for Tertullian here, what has the mosque to do with the academy? What has Mecca to do with Jerusalem? Nothing. Or uh, what does Mecca to to do with Athens? Nothing. Instead, Al-Ghazali comes up with a new idea. It's called occasionalism. Everything in the world, in the whole universe, is caused by the will of God. What this does is completely wreck their science. Get ready. So in other words, he rejects material causality, which is so weird. So here's the deal. The doctor, when you're sick, gives you medicine. And you take the medicine, and you get better. And you may be tempted, you wicked Greek individual. You may be tempted to attribute your getting better to the medicine you got. But no, the medicine did not cause that. You know what caused you to get better? The will of God. Now, if you hadn't gotten the medicine, we can't, because it's a counterfactual, we can't know if he would have gotten better. But we do know that everything that happens happens because of the will of God, not because of anything like natural causality. If there's no such thing as natural causality, the study of the physical world is a waste of time. All that we have to study, all that we can study, is the will of God, and that turns out to be inscrutable. So this wrecks Islamic culture. Averroes... Is Who's working at the time of Thomas Aquinas, or a little before, uh, at the same time as Maimonides, what he says is, no, look, Al-Ghazali has just wrecked our culture. We can't allow this. Instead, I'm going to try and reconcile Aristotle and uh, Jerusalem.
1: How do you spell Al-Ghazali?
0: A-L hyphen G-H-A-Z-A-L-I. So, so Averroes was after? After, Averroes? yeah. He tried to respond to Al-Ghazali. The problem is that Averroes was almost completely ignored in the Islamic world. It wasn't until centuries later that Islamic writers started reading him saying, You know, this guy got it right. We totally messed up. By then, the party's over. Right? So, Christians, Jews, and Muslims are all trying to make their deal with Aristotle. Why? Because he's the new thing. Yeah.
1: yeah, leads in my mind to a certain deal of immense irony when you have modern Thomas who
0: are unwilling to deal with the new things. You know, um, I've read scripture. I got no sense that Jesus was an Aristotelian. <laughs> I, mean, I, I didn't see anything like that. Also, I've been told that. Uh, the view that I hold that uh, there are a whole collection of things that don't have essences, like chairs. I've also been told that that's not the Catholic view, because and the implicit idea was that Jesus was a Platonist. Well, no, actually. Uh, the Church has certainly been influenced by Platonism, but um, I don't think that Jesus was beholden to the Greek intellectual tradition at all. Well, there's no sign that he knew anything. Paul was. Paul was a Hellenized Greek, or Hellenized Jew. But Jesus seems, I mean, there's very little that I see in the Gospels that suggests to me, well, here's this guy who spent a lot of time reading Greek philosophy. No. So, Tertullian is not so far wrong when he says, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Al-Ghazali does that, but the problem is he gets a tremendous following and he aborts Islamic culture which is really a sad thing to see, actually. All right. After the sun, here we're going to get the Crusaders, the warriors for the faith. Right. And uh, whereas the sun represented the, version of the uh, virtue of wisdom, this represents the virtue of courage. And who do we get there? Not, not Christians just, not, excuse me, Christians there either. We get uh, David, King David, uh, Bathsheba and all. I mean, he got a, around a lot of stuff, a lot of bad stuff, but his repentance was successful. Besides, God likes the songs. <laughs> Next is Jupiter for just rulers. Rather, we're already there, yeah. And that's justice. After that is Saturn for the contemplatives, right? So what he's doing is validating the Greek idea, and also also a part of Christian monasticism that the idea of that the ideal life is contemplative rather than active. It's not that the active life is bad; it's that it doesn't offer us as close a connection to God as action does. Yeah. That's that's an idea that's
1: common to.
0: Jerusalem and Athens, Jesus says uh,
1: Mary was right, Martha was wrong, etc. Okay.
0: Um, The contemplatives are understood to be the high point of moderation. They restrain their desires for everything else. All they want is a vision of God. Okay, so these seven glass spheres are all between the earth, and the sky, which is a kind of bowl, OK? When we move, and so the motion of all those things is reflected by is the an, uh, artifact of the movement of those spheres. But most of the stuff in the sky doesn't move. The stars are understood to be fixed. And they're fixed because they're attached to the roof of the world or the universe. All right? This is the church triumphant and we see all kinds of representations of faith, hope, and charity. Peter, James, and John personally inquire of Dante, do you have faith, hope, and charity? And he turns out to pass the exam. Beatrice becomes progressively more beautiful as we climb uh, towards God. She represents theology. She leads us upward towards union with God. And in the domain of the fixed stars, we have the Virgin and the Saints, Peter, James, and John. And then finally... We step beyond the roof of the universe altogether, which means we step out of thesis right, into metaphysics. Now, the problem is, in some ways, the problems that we always have with metaphysics. It's fairly easy to talk about the physical world since you can, if there's any doubt as to what you're talking about, you can actually kind of point to it and say, This is a cup. It's really hard to do with pure abstractions, like we do with the metaphysics. And uh, the Empyrean is where God himself hangs out, but of course it's not a place, doesn't have a location. But there he is, being God. Now I can't imagine that God undergoes any changes. And so there he is, but it's not there, right, because there's no location. So, he is. And you see how languages start to deform as so you want to talk about it? You know? In a very strange way, I'm reminded of Gorgias trying to, to say, like, uh,
1: well, if there's a being, then it's either here or there, but it can't be either here or there, and so clearly there's
0: no being. <laughs> yeah. Um, there may be being, but it's an awfully hard thing to talk about, to give content uh, to. Right. And uh, there, He's outside the realm of physical experience altogether. So he sees this symbolic rose, and he's overwhelmed with light in every direction. The symbolic rose is the love of God, in which the people at the top level of heaven, or the angels, um, manage to get as close as they can to God. These are the angels that never fell. And uh, eventually, Canto 100, we actually get to the presence of God directly. And for me, anyway, this is kind of a letdown. And it's not, I really think, Dante's fault. It's just that um, words break down here. There's nothing you can say about that. In other words, uh, I'm, I think that when God reveals himself to Moses at the beginning of, is it back in Exodus, um, Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And he, God says, tell him I am sent you. That's my name, I am. I think what that means is that predicates don't apply to God. I mean, he's not big, he's not green, he's not tired. Right? He's not 31 years old. In other words, any predicate you might want to put in there doesn't apply. It's not that it isn't true. It's that the opposite is also true. Yeah, God is big, but he's also small. And also no size at all. all right. He's not red, but he's not in the other color either. Does that help? Alright. Uh, whatever predicate you want to attach, I can also I can negate that predicate, t- toss that in there. God's that too. Okay. So uh, God is a strong silent type. All right. He uh, doesn't he, he reveals a limited aspect of himself. But there's no way the human mind can turn God into an object of simple contemplation or simple expression. So we're going to get light and the rose, alright, I am the way, the truth and the light, the roses, the love of God, and then we get to the final phase where we actually encounter God directly. And it turns out to be three circles, which are exactly the same size but different colors that are together or that they are connected. Not the way chains are connected, or rather they're all exactly the same size. Um, in other words, look, Dante has run out of things to say, and it's not really his fault. I mean, what do you want to say about seeing God face to face? You know, you, you've exhausted what you can do with language. Yeah. One thing I did, one image that
1: did really stick with me, though, is uh, God as this, like a sun at the center, and the nine choirs of angels just circling around him to infinity. Oh, yeah.
0: Nine, three times three, it's a really good number. All right. And uh, seven glass spheres we've climbed, again, a really good number. Uh, There's lots of biblical numerology here. But yeah, the angels fly around him, of course, um... Flying seems to indicate a change of location in a place that doesn't have location. So So they're not flying exactly. I don't exactly know what they're doing. I d I don't even know if there exists a word for what it, I mean, what do the angels do in God's presence? Sing, pray, applaud? I don't know what the hell is going on. All without bodies. Right, all without bodies. Yeah, that's gonna make it that much more difficult. All right. Um so, here we've come to the end of the line. This is like the problem that Plato has in talking about the form of the good. I mean, we've established that it's that the form of the good is really good. It's just tremendous goodness. On the other hand, uh, what there is to say about that, I am completely at a loss. All right. So, one argument, one. one Idea worth considering is that um, there is no way to say God's name. All right? That's why in the Old Testament, the uh, oh, God's name was, o- was only allowed to be used once a year by the high priest in the Holy of Holies. Apart from that, using God's name in vain, that's a sin. You're breaking the second commandment. So, language which turns out to be insufficient to, uh, say, explain what coffee smells like, um, completely breaks down long before you get to to talking about God. Even one of the seven greatest poets that ever lived can't push language past that. So I don't doubt that God exists, but I do doubt that there's all that much to say about him. I mean, maybe being is, uh, I don't know what that is, but I don't know what there is to say about that either. The yeah. humorous thing is that when you, you get to both Aquinas and Akira, it turns
1: out that even saying God exists is somewhat problematic.
0: Yeah, it's true. <laughs> All right. On the other hand, you don't want to negate that. You don't want to say God doesn't exist. What you really want is, is to give them the Japanese answer, Mu. Uh, Mu comes from Japanese Zen Buddhism. It's when the master says, unask the question." The problem is the question itself um, is badly asked and reflects your own misunderstanding of what's going on. So, mu means not yes and not no. It means mu. Well, yeah, you've been a, see, you're a Westerner. You think that uh, the decision tree is binary. The answer is either yes or no. What if that's not the case? You're asking the wrong question, or your question has presuppositions in it, which undermine and vitiate the question. Yeah, that's exactly the point. Unask the question. That's actually a skill that can be learned, too. Alright? Um, badly asked questions are the source of a tremendous amount of philosophical confusion. All right. Learning to ask questions is a skill, and you can develop it. That's what I'm hoping to see at the end of the term. All right. Now, here in Dante, we're seeing, in some ways it's the high point of the Middle Ages, but in some ways you can see the Middle Ages are beginning to crack up here. All right. There's too much uh, cozying up with virtuous Muslims. That's point one. Point two is that Dante is batting cleanup for medieval Christian culture, but he goes beyond his uh, commission and adds in a bunch of stuff that he just thinks should be there. All right, So we get some Muslims that God says, look, these guys are okay. They're philosophers. They're pagans. So they're not heretics and they're not polytheists. These are um, genuine philosophers. We find some surprising people in heaven. And Trajan, for example, a Roman emperor. Um, And so he takes liberties that I don't think anyone would have been inclined to take 200 years earlier. So, too much influence is being or too much shadow is being cast by the Jewish and very much, and very importantly, the Islamic tradition. That's why we have Isidore of Seville in there. And uh, here it's a much more complicated, much richer mix of sources than you're going to get 200 years earlier at the time of the First Crusade. Now, what we're going to be looking at is the breakup of the medieval synthesis. All right. And what that means is that the great work of Aquinas, which pulls together an astonishing collection of sources. Uh, there's scripture, there's Greek philosophy, there's Jewish writings of the Jewish rabbis and Islamic writings. That, and it's clear Aquinas knows all these. He studied them very carefully. Yeah. And the patristics. Like and the patristics, of course. A type of Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's truly amazing, yeah. The, uh, ability of Aquinas. Not only did he have an encyclopedic knowledge, but he had a total recall. Uh, Ask a question. Uh, Get nine different people who were wrong. And then, but I say. (laughs) (laughs) And we take care of that. Had it ever occurred to you that uh, Aquinas' method of formal question, wrong answer, then final answer, what this is, is petrified platonic dialogue. There's no life in it. It's frozen. It's marble. Alright. Uh, that's something we're thinking that the dialogic form is still there. Just barely just still there. He's a Platonist without the artistic sense. Yeah, that's actually a nice way of putting it. And also remember that he has access to very little Plato. Right. Although well, we did say that Socrates was the greatest of philosophers. I think it's true. Fair observation. Um The medieval synthesis is going to break up, and it's going to get pulled in different directions. Right? Uh, one is towards an ever more Greek rationalism, right? and that's what we're going to get with uh, William of Ockham, Billy O, I I like him. And what I like about him is he asks a good question, and the good question is, why do we need all this metaphysical, theological, cosmonology? Um, Why don't we just draw circles around collections of things? (laughs) Because I understand what a circle around collections of things would look like, whereas the tremendous metaphysical abstractions that you've given us, like uh, how can I put it? Virtueness. Why don't we just say that there's a collection of of actions we call virtuous. Put a circle around them, so that's what virtue is. Says that simplifies things greatly, and remember, Occam's is the guy who's going to invent Occam's Razor. The point of Occam's Razor is to shave Plato's beard. That's really what it is. In other words, Plato's been growing all the well. Remember the Raphael's School of Athens, where Plato's got the long beard, looks like God the Father. Okay, he desperately needs a shave. <laughs> all right, and Occam says, "I got the razor for that." What I'm going to do is. Examine all of his doctrines and say, why do we need that? Why should I believe in a thing like that? And if the answer is because Plato says so, off comes the beer. right. We're only go- In other words, um, intellectual constructions are instruments invented by human beings to do stuff. What Occam wants to know is, um, how do we separate the useful instruments from the instruments that don't do anything? And the instruments that don't do anything, actually do something, they confuse us. And they send us on wild goose chases, trying to find out what the nature of beautyness is. What if there's no platonic essence in that? The other half of it, I mean, that's the ultra-rational, right, and this is gonna be the future of thought. The other side, I kind of like this side too. Is Meister Eckhart. He's a mystic. Right? The name they give him is the man from whom God hid nothing. Now, whatever they put on my headstone, it's not gonna be that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. But they did say, you know, while he was still alive, this guy, I mean, would give sermons, and everybody would be looking at each other like this is the end of the world. <laughs> they don't expect this sermon to actually conclude because God's gonna now kick everybody's butt. Um Meister Eckhart um, Said stuff that no one should be able to say. He actually figured out a way poetically of messing with language so that um, He does a better job than Dante. He does a better job than anybody or for me anyway, in other words I I get a lot out of reading Meister Eckhart, right? Uh, It's good for my soul. Also, I'm also shocked and amazed that he's able to do He says, for example, in one section, God is green and flower. Now, that is not a statement about the wavelength that comes off photons when they hit God. Rather, um, he is metaphorically green and flower. Now, remember that metaphors are meaningful nonsense. And as Aristotle said, metaphor is the only thing that can't be taught. It's always, as Aristotle says, it's always a sign of genius. And this guy is a stone-cold genius. <coughs> One of the great lines. And I could not have I could not think <coughs> this up in a million years. One of the Weiss great lines is. Um, I have never heard God's voice, but I have occasionally heard God clear his throat as if to announce his presence without speaking. Now, the problem is, if you've ever had the experience of the presence of God, I mean, that's it. I mean, there is anything. But could you have thought up the idea that God clears his throat, and that's how he represented that? I mean, I couldn't have thought that up, no matter how much time you give me. My strikeout just bangs it right out in one of the sermons. Right? And no wonder people used to look at each other like, wow, this is really spooky. I remember a time that God cleared his throat, and it was one of the most shocking things that ever happened to me. There we go. Yeah, and I don't know of any better way to put it than that. In other words, um, you can do all the scholastic logic chopping in the world. I would give it all for that line. But we got to remember. I mean, and you've picked it into and I'm a sucker for the for the poetic philosophers. I mean, I think that uh, if if I'm going to get the truth, then damn well better be beautiful. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> also, I'm not, i I mean, I'm sure there's lots of interesting stuff there, but I don't want to be interested. I want to be edified. And that's important to me. I don't understand people that don't like artistic philosophers or poetic philosophers. It's like not liking poetry, and that's just unnatural. Something wrong with people. It's It's like being a modern Thomist. (laughs) That's a different kind of unnatural. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a blast from the past. Or actually, no, no. Contemporary Thomism is something like what they're doing in Russia. Digging up those mammoths and then reviving them using the DNA. Uh, This is as dead as the woolly mammoth, and it'd be interesting to see one walking around. But that's not going to make this uh, a viable activity. Just me. I will see you on Thursday. All right. Um, Read Meister Eckhart and be edified. And if you don't like it, don't tell me because I will never forgive you for not liking this. (laughs) You don't have to like Meister. You don't have to like Billy O, but. He's actually really good. See you later. Do you want us to read uh, the sentences as well? There yes, yes. Uh, just, uh, whatever it is that's there, just a few things. So.